Good afternoon, everyone. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'll be reading verses 4 to 9. Uh, Last week I commented that uh, although we do have it up here on the PowerPoint, if you do bring a Bible, I think that's uh, that's important. I do encourage that. Um, And as you're turning there, for the few who are in um, 1 Corinthians verses 4 to 9, I want to start by just kind of recapping uh, what we've said so far. Last week, we started a series in 1 Corinthians entitled, Being a Cross-Eyed Church. Uh, And I really appreciate, Thomas, the songs that you've picked uh, that really helped us to look and focus again on the cross. And we said that for the next two and a half months, what we're going to do is we're going to spend time looking at the first four chapters of Corinthians. And uh, the reason we're doing that is because we want to know what it means for a church to have our eyes focused on the cross of Christ. We want to know what it means for us to be grounded in the gospel of Jesus. And so last week we looked at the first three verses and we simply talked about two things. How the church is God's possession. We are a church of God. And second, how we are God's people. That we are sanctified saints. And so this week what we want to do is we want to consider this portion, this Thanksgiving portion in Paul's letters. And so we're reading verses 4 to 9. And so please hear now the reading of God's holy word. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, as we turn our attention now to your word, I do pray and I do ask for your spirit to come. We know that unless your spirit is present, unless he is working in our hearts, that he is awakening the deadness of our hearts and our minds and our ears, that this word would fall flat. But because you are the living God, and because you speak to us in a living word, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give to us a new life as we hear, that you would form us into the church you want us to be, especially as we consider what it means to be a cross-eyed church. Father, I pray that you would be with us so that you would be reminding us, encouraging us, rebuking us, whatever we need. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take these words that you penned through the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago. And speak them again anew into this church, to the saints here at Cornerstone. So, Father, be with us now as we turn our attention to your word, that we would listen and that you would speak clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I once heard a pastor say in a sermon, um, he said this, he said, Ladies, there is no perfect man, so you're going to have to settle. And they were very discouraged. But then he said something very encouraging to the men. He said, men, if this is true, then shoot for the stars. (laughs) You know, there's something true about that. Women, if there is no perfect guy and you're going to have to settle, you know, that may not be encouraging for you, but for the guys, that's an amazing encouragement. It means you actually have a chance. You know, in the same way, Christians, there is no perfect church. But that's an encouragement 
that's an encouragement to us that there is no church that's perfect. And it's not an encouragement because it means, okay, you can just settle for any church. It's not an encouragement because it means, hey, now it doesn't matter which church you commit to. But it's an encouragement because it's reminding us there is no perfect church, so you can't take the criteria of perfection and lay it over other churches and then proceed to evaluate and judge them according to that standard. If you do that, all churches are going to fail because there is no perfect church. You know, you may have also heard the saying, there is no perfect church. And if there is one, don't go there because you'll mess it up. You know, that's equally true. But here's the question. If there is no perfect church, if it's true, in fact, that all churches are actually messed up, then how can any Christian like Apostle Paul be thankful for their church? That's the question, that's the topic we want to answer today. Because last week when we considered the church of Corinth, we saw that the church was really messed up. We hadn't gotten there, but we looked forward in the letter to see some of the, some of the sins that Paul was confronting, some of their behavior that Paul was writing in rebuke of. There was uh, incest, lawsuits, there was boasting, there was division, there were so many issues. And then it was so shocking when we read this portion, the first three verses, and saw that Paul actually calls the Christians in Corinth sanctified. He calls these messed up, sinful Christians he calls them saints. And, and we're thinking, no, they're scandalous sinners. Why is he calling them sanctified saints? And you know what's interesting as we continue in this portion, this portion of Thanksgiving, we also see another surprise. Because not only is Paul calling these messed up Christian sanctified saints, but he's actually giving thanks to God for them. He's thanking God for the struggling church. And it makes me think if I was in Paul's shoes, and I thought about a church this messed up, at, at best, they would be an incredible headache. And at worst, they would be a hypocritical people who were detrimental to the witness of the gospel, who I would secretly be thinking, please don't call yourself a Christian because you're giving us a bad name. At best, a headache. At worst, these hypocrites that you're just saying, please don't say you're a Christian because when others look and then they say that, they hear that I'm a Christian, they're going to associate. And so you can imagine how surprising, maybe even the Corinthians felt. You know, they knew they were sinners. They knew they had messed up. When Paul writes them a letter, he calls them saints, and then he actually goes on to give thanks for them. You know, Paul actually knows the secret of being thankful for any church, no matter how messed up, no matter how many issues or how many problems that they have. And I think, you know what, for us Christians today, this is a secret that all of us need to know. We all need to know this secret for how to be thankful for messed up churches. Because there are those who are skeptical about the church, and they need to know it. There are those who have been hurt and burned by the church, and they need to know it. And then there are those who are always in constant criticism and complain about their church, and they need to know this secret too. It makes me wonder, how different would the culture of churches be if every believer who came into their door were really genuinely thankful for their church? The culture of the church would be entirely different. Not only that, how different would the witness of the church be? I mean, when people look at the church and say, those guys actually want to be there. They love it there. What's going on? Our gospel truth this afternoon, the one-sentence summary of our point of the sermon is this. God has given grace, gifts, and a guarantee. So be thankful to the church. Or maybe I'll flip that the other way. You should be thankful for your church because God has given to every church grace, 
gifts, and a guarantee. So those are our three points this afternoon. Grace given, gifts provided, and a guarantee promised. And so first, being thankful for grace given. If you have your Bible or your phone, please look with me at verse 4, and let's read this together. It says, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now think about this. While Paul is writing them a letter, he's writing them a letter to address their scandalous behavior, he actually then stops, he takes the time to pause and reflect and give thanks to God for them. And here's the interesting thing. Paul is able to see not only just past their deficiencies as a church, but he's able to look past their rejection of him, both his office and his message. Because if you remember, in verse 1, Paul has to defend his apostleship. They had rejected him in favor of the rhetoricians and the orators in the city. There were these men in the city who made their living off of persuasive arguments. They spoke and they mastered the art of rhetoric. And these Christians, they hear Paul, this short Jewish man, or used to be a Jewish priest, or priest, rabbi, they're rejecting his message, and they're saying, you know, you, know, you, you started this church, you planted this church, but you know what? We like these guys better. Paul has been burned. Paul has been hurt by the church because they're preferring men of persuasion over against God's, God's chosen spokesperson. And so here's, imagine Paul. So Paul not only hears about all the issues that are happening in the church, but Paul himself has been hurt by the church. It's become personal. And then even in that circumstance, Paul gives thanks for the church. Now, this situation, it may be familiar to some of you. And I'm not sure about your past church experiences, but some of you may have seen sin tear a church apart. You see it sometimes in a pastor's moral failure. You see it sometimes in fighting and pride amongst members. And sometimes you see it through gossip that spread like wildfire, just burning everything in its path. My best friend served at a church where there was such division and disagreement amongst the church members. It got so severe that there were actually restraining orders placed against deacons and elders. This is a true story. I asked him for for permission to tell the story. I said, do you mind if I tell the story? He said, you can even say the church name. (laughs) I'm I'm not going to. But you know what? When you went to his church, and I visited once, the restraining orders, they were posted publicly on the bulletin walls in the church hallways so that everyone can see. And you think, that's bad. On Sunday mornings, you go to the church, whereas we're met with ushers. You know what they were met by? Police officers. Every Sunday, police officers stationed at the church doors to make sure certain men and women didn't step foot on the church grounds. You imagine the pain of those members. You imagine the confusion of the kids. Why is a police officer at church? You can imagine the hurt of those caught in the middle of such conflict. And some of you may have been hurt by the church in that kind of way. And some of you may have been the subject of gossip. Or you may have been the casualty caught in a crossfire. Some of us, maybe you've been outcast by the church. You've been marginalized by people who you thought were your family or you were, you were backstabbed. You were let down by people who you trusted most in the church. You know what? It's not unusual to hear testimonies of those in the church who have been badly wounded. You know, sadly, it's an all-too-familiar story. And a lot of people in churches, they're oftentimes like war veterans. Church members, they've seen battle. They have scars to show. They have stories to tell. 
That was the condition of the Corinthian church. Yet in the midst of this church, Paul is able to give God thanks for them. Now, if you notice carefully, Paul doesn't say, God, I give you thanks for your grace. Paul doesn't thank God for his grace. Paul thanks God for these people whom he has shown grace. And the question is, how is Paul able to be thankful for people? These people are messed up. And you can think, oh, maybe Paul's naive. Maybe Paul's overly uh, optimistic. But it's not a matter of perception. It's not like Paul was choosing to see the good in people. Paul didn't see an empty cup and choose to see it half full. You know, Paul actually understood. He knew the situation. He wasn't naive. He knew the Corinthian church was messed up. In fact, he actually acknowledges that they're messed up. Because when he thanks God for the grace that is given to them, what is he saying? He's saying these Corinthian believers are people who need grace. Follow the logic. Who is grace for? Grace is for people who have, grace is not for people who have their lives together. Grace is not for people who are put together. Grace is not for people who are able to make it on their own. Those kinds of people, they don't need grace. Who's grace for? Grace is for the beggar. Grace is for the weak. Grace is for the powerless. Grace is for the unable. Grace is for the inadequate. Grace is for the sinner. So when Paul gives God thanks for the grace given to these Corinthian He is identifying them as the beggars, the weak, the powerless, the inadequate, the unable, and the sinners. Paul gives thanks for these weak men and women, but the reality is that these people, when they come, they have nothing to offer. They have nothing to contribute. They pitch in nothing to the church except for the baggage that they bring in the door. So how is Paul thankful for them? That's the question. How is Paul able to give thanks for a church that is as messed up as The church in Corinth. And it's this. This is the secret. Paul recognizes that he is just like them. Paul recognizes that he is a grace recipient just like them. If Paul was better than them, if Paul didn't need the same grace they needed, then he has every right to complain, every right to bemoan the church. If Paul didn't receive grace the way they receive grace, then Paul is absolutely justified in leaving the church and dissociating himself from this group of screw-ups, from attaching himself to another church, a better church, a healthier church, a godlier church. But Paul doesn't do that because when he looks at the church of Corinth, when he looks at these Corinthian believers caught in their sin, he recognizes that the same grace of God that saved him is the grace of God that is working in their lives. And this allows Paul to be able to see them in a new light. Having received God's grace, both he and they are now identified, not with their sin, but they're identified with Jesus. So if you actually look in verse 4, Paul writes, The grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. They are no longer identified with their sins and their faults and their failures. They are identified with the Savior And because Paul has received grace, he understands that. He can see that. So the question is, what about you? How about you? When you look at any church, when you look at this church, what do you see? Do you see the problems, the shortcomings, and all the defects? Or do you see God's grace that has covered a multitude of sin? How easy is it for you to spot the 
the speck in another person's eye and totally miss the plank in your own. You know, have you ever walked through the beauty department of a department store? Or maybe uh, some, some of the guys are like, what? <laughs> but you have. <laughs> um, you know, may, maybe, not, maybe not a Macy's or um, an Alta or a Sephora. Sometimes we find ourselves in these places. But if, you, if you've been in one of these stores, you, you know that they all have these uh, double-sided mirrors, right? One side is a normal reflection. You flip it, and it's the magnified portion of it. And the reason is so that you can see all of your blemishes and then go buy things to cover it up. Um, you know, one time I was in the mall, and I was walking through the section, and, and I saw one of the mirrors, and I said, hey, you know, it would be fun to look at it. And I looked at it, and I don't, you know, I'm sh- pretty sure they put, like, extra lights, bright lights, but like interrogation lights. And I'm looking at it, and I was in horror as I saw, you know, just every fault in my face, every pore, every blackhead, every whitehead exposed. And, you know, you see something like that, and you think, man, I need to exfoliate. I need to, I need to put on a mud pack. I mean, th- this is not right. And, you know, in that moment, I felt so exposed. And, you know, then I thought to myself, Man, I got to look at the regular side, you know, so it doesn't. And I turned it over, and I realized I was looking at the regular side, uh, and that the magnified side was on the other side. And you see all of your faults. You see everything that's lacking in your face. But here's the thing. Spiritually, if you're able to look at the Word of God, as James says, you look at the Word of God, and you recognize your own blemishes and your own faults, and yet despite that, you know that God has still loved you, and God has given you grace Then, when you understand that grace, then when you look at your church's face, their natural face, you look at your church without any of the makeup on, you look at the church that's completely bare under the scrutiny of God's exposing holiness, then you don't criticize, you don't judge the church, but you give God thanks because the grace you've experienced is the same grace that you see and recognize in the people around you. Seeing your own need of grace transforms you so that you are no longer critical and judgmental, but you begin to be generous in your love toward the church and your patience toward the church and your thankfulness for the church. The reality is, yes, you could complain. You could be dissatisfied with your church. Or you can see that the same grace that you need is the grace that they need and let that fuel your thanksgiving for the church. And so instead of focusing on what your church doesn't have, you focus on what your church does have and what your church has in abundance. And that is the full measure of God's overflowing grace. If you understand how grace works, you won't primarily see a person or a church's sins, their past, their mistakes, or what they lack, but you will see the measure of God's grace working in their lives and in the life of the church. And then you'll be able to say with Paul, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. You'll be able to say that about your church and its members no matter how imperfect they may be. So that's the first secret. Understand the grace given and you will be thankful for the church. Here's the second one. Being thankful for God's gifts provided. God provides gifts for us. So read with me now in verse 5. Paul continues, That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Here we see the second thing that allows Paul to give God thanksgiving for the church. 
Notice Paul says that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. Speech and knowledge, these were two of the most prized gifts in the Corinthian culture. Although we have not gotten to the rest of the letter, it actually becomes very clear later on that these two gifts, speech and knowledge, right? What, is, what do orators need? What do rhetoricians need? They need speech and knowledge. That's why these gifts were so highly prized. But later we see that people in the church, they were abusing their gifts, that they were abusing and using it for personal gain. So they're not using the God-given gifts for God's glory, but for self-glory. And so Paul writes them and he corrects them. Actually, later in the the letter, in chapter 8, Paul's going to write, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He's correcting them. He's saying, you guys are using knowledge and it puffs you up, but you got to know that you need love with the knowledge. And regarding speech, he writes in chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He's saying some of you have these prophetic abilities and speech and tongues and all these speaking gifts, but if you have not love, then it's pointless. Paul knows that the Corinthians are abusing their gifts. Paul knows that they are using their gifts self-servingly, but he's still able to give God thanksgiving. And the reason he's able to do that is because he's not focusing on the gifts that the believers have achieved, but on gifts that God has provided. His focus isn't on the Corinthians and how they've been using their gifts, but his focus on God and how God has provided those things. He's provided them in such a way, as verse 7 says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. God makes sure that all of his churches are never in lack. They're never in want. Their church has everything that she needs because God ensures it. So my question is, Cornerstone, do you believe that? Do you believe that all you need to be God's people, all you need to be God's church in this world, you have already been supplied and provided for? From what the elders have told me, do you realize that in your almost two years of having no pastor on staff at all, that there was never a Sunday that you were not supplied somebody to fill this pulpit and preach the word? Do you know that? Do you know that you had capable men and women who sustained ministries, met for prayer, kept shepherding, led missions, continued mercy outreach, helped with the youth group, ran the children's education, taught children. You know, you even had a baptism. God has provided so that even when you thought you didn't have the pastor, oh, the greatest gift to the church, I'm thankful that you pray and give God thanksgiving for me. But do you know that you had been supplied everything you need so that you were never in lack? You know, this happens not because you're so great. This is not a matter of boasting, oh, cornerstone is great. No, it's a matter to give God thanks. For all the gifts and all the ministry of the people that he has supplied. He made sure there was nothing lacking during the transition years of this church. And he will continue to provide until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you know how God provides the gifts for his church? How does God supply the church with his gifts? He does so by enriching every member united to Christ. The scriptures here say that that in every way you were enriched in him. That all those who are united to Jesus, Christians, believers, God enriched you. He gave you gifts. So that means we should give God thanks for our church members. 
because the gifts come to us via church members. That means every single one of you here in this room, you, you have a gift. You have a gift given from God. You have a gift given from God to be used for the good of the church. You have a gift given from God to be used for the good of the church, for the glory of God. You know, sometimes we look at other churches and we see all that we lack. Right? We lack oh, volunteers. We lack all these special abilities. And, you know, we lack this and that. And so many times we can look at other churches and we can say, oh, I wish we had a program in place like that. Or we wish we had, a, you know, a core of helpers like that. We wish we had that kind of creativity and that kind of leadership. But having this kind of envy totally misses the point of what Paul's trying to get at, which is that we don't consider what we lack, but we appreciate, we see all that God has provided in what we have. Have you guys ever seen a photo mosaic puzzle? If, if you don't know what that is, basically you guys know what a puzzle is. It, has a, has a, it depicts an image, but if you look closely, each individual puzzle piece has an image within it. Right, that's a photo mosaic puzzle. So, you know, from afar, you see the whole scene, and then you go up close and you can see smaller scenes. Well, the church is like a puzzle. Right? When you put it together, you can see the church. You can see any church. You can see Cornerstone Church. But then when you look closely at the puzzle pieces, what you see comprising the church is each individual member. The puzzle piece of Cornerstone is each one of your faces. You and the gifts that God has enriched you with, you make up the church because God provides all that we need through the church. But some of us don't have that idea. Some of us think like, like this. Have you ever lost a puzzle piece? Some of you know what that's like. One time I was working on a puzzle with some people, and we spent a couple hours, I don't want to say maybe three or four hours, a bunch of people. We're almost finished, except for there's this one missing spot. And until that spot, until that puzzle piece is found, the picture is what? It's incomplete. So what did we do in desperation, right? We just spent so many hours. This picture is incomplete until we find this last piece. So, you know, everyone checked the bags and the boxes, and we're on the floor. We're trying to find the puzzle piece. And about an hour later, you know, somebody said, oh, I forgot. <laughs> when I went to the bathroom, I put it in my pocket, and I forgot about it. <laughs> you look at that person. Are you thankful? No, you are frustrated. You are angry. In the same way, some of us think that this is how God works, that somehow um, we don't have a PowerPoint person. We don't have a photographer, right? We don't have a website person. Oh, like the church, we're not complete until we have this. And, and you think that the church, right, that this little, this person, right, is, is the missing puzzle piece. And that somehow God is saying, be the church, and he's secretly holding the puzzle piece in his pocket, and he's not sending you that person. No, that's not how it works at all. Everything that you have is enough to complete the picture of the church because God makes sure that the church is never, ever lacking. When we begin to think this way, it will squash our thanksgiving. We will complain and we will get more and more angry. We will never be thankful. But we must know this, what God gives to his church and the gifts and the people is everything we need to make us complete, meaning also that anything that we don't have means it's not central to what God wants us to be at this moment. Anything we don't have now means it's not central for us to be the church at the moment. God doesn't provide every gift the church needs by endowing only one individual super Christian. 
God spreads the gifts out amongst his people. There is no one single person on whom the church relies. Because if there was such a person that was gifted in this supernatural kind of way and all the gifts were residing in that person, then we should keep that person in a bubble. Because if the flu season came around and they were sick, we'd have to cancel church. <laughs> no, he, he hasn't given us one supernatural individual who he's bestowed all the gifts. He's given us the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And on him, he gives us the members of the church. And the church is built upon the cornerstone. Everything the church need, needs is supplied in the gifts of every member. But then we also need to be protected against this thinking. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't welcome newcomers because we have everything we need. Right? It doesn't mean when people come to the door, you say, excuse me, no, thank you. We're, we're pretty complete our, in ourselves. Right? We don't train our welcomers to be bouncers. That's not, that's not what we're doing here. As God sends people, he does so because he knows the church's needs will begin to change. And he doesn't want us lacking any gift. So someone new coming in the church isn't, oh, we've been lacking, finally you came. Someone coming in the church is, okay, God is taking us somewhere else, and you are here, and you're bringing the gifts that he's enriched in you as you've been united to Jesus to now participate and make more full the picture of the church. So Cornerstone, when you begin to see this church through this lens, you become thankful for the church. You become thankful for each member. You're thankful for to God for every gift and every person he's provided. Because, you know, here's the thing. Yes, each of the people, none of us here, we're not perfect. None of our gifts are perfect. None of our service is perfect. But the God who has given us these gifts is perfect. And he has chosen to supply the gifts through imperfect men. And so for this reason, we can be thankful. We can look around and we can be thankful for the people and for the church, knowing that God has met every need and he has not left us lacking. That's the second one. The third and last point is this, being thankful for a guaranteed promise, for a guaranteed promise. Look at verses 7 with me, 7 and 8. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The scriptures are saying God has given us a guarantee. This guarantee will sustain us and it will present us guiltless on the final day of judgment. Now, what's the source of this guarantee? It's not us. It's not our perseverance. It's not our faithfulness. It is God's. That's why Paul reminds us in verse 9, God is faithful. The guarantee of glory on the final day is not a guarantee that we can secure. The guarantee of glory on the final day is not a guarantee that we grasp with clenched fists, but ones that we receive with open hands. Now, this is an incredible statement because any person writing to a church like one in Corinth, anybody who's writing to a church and wants them to change would most likely use the day of final judgment as fear. If you said, Andrew, this is what's going on in the church of Corinth, now write them a letter. My letter would be, dear Corinthians, you better get your act together because one day Jesus Christ is going to show up. You don't know when that is. And do you want to be caught with all of your sins and scandals? Do you want to face his judgment? Isn't that how a lot of us would respond? We would use the day of judgment, the final day, as fear. But Paul doesn't go that route. No, he doesn't. 
Paul knows the gospel. Paul is living out the gospel. Instead, Paul uses grace as the motivation. By God's grace, he will sustain you to the end. By God's grace, he will present you guiltless on the final day. By God's grace, he will be faithful to you when you are faithless to him. And this guarantee is promised to all those who are called, as verse 9 says, into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God's faithfulness is for those who are united in fellowship to Jesus Christ. Now, what did this mean for the Corinthians? It gave them incredible hope that they are not, that they would not be what they were, but that they would be that which God would make them. Their hope, the guarantee promised is, you are not going to stay the way you are, but you are going to be the way I make you. That's the encouragement for you and me as well, that we don't look at what we are, but what we will become. And when you look at a church, you look at her members, all you can see is her wrinkles, you can see her pockmarks, and it's easy to get discouraged that way, but But Paul saw the church, and he was able to give thanks for it because he saw not what the church was, but what the the church would be. He was able to be thankful for the church because of the promise guarantee that one day she would be presented guiltless. And this is the same reason that you and I shouldn't give up on the church, no matter what her problems, no matter what her issues. Listen, because if God doesn't let the church's faults and mistakes define her identity, then how can you let those things define her? If God, the judge of the universe, is not going to let the church's guilt define her, then how can you let the church's guilt define her? Are you a fairer judge than the judge of the universe? Here is the guarantee. The guilty will be considered guiltless on the final day of glory. That's the guarantee. The guilty will be declared guiltless on the final day of glory glory. Not that we shed off our guilt. Not that God forgets our guilt. Not that we work hard and make up for our guilt. But that this very Jesus in whom we are united to, he absorbs our guilt. He takes on our guilt. And ultimately, he takes the punishment for our guilt. That's why he endured the cross. So that one day, the guilty would be presented guiltless on the day of glory. That's why we need to be a cross-eyed church because on the cross, Jesus takes our guilty status. He washes us clean. He promises to present us guiltless and in glory on the final day. That is the guarantee that we are promised. That is the hope that we have. Not that we will be as we are, but we will be as he will make us. And he guarantees this with his body and his blood. And when you understand that, when you see those around in your church, you don't see them for what they are, but you see them for what Christ will make them. But here's the thing. In the meanwhile, we are a people in the middle. We have a promised guarantee, but we struggle presently. And that's why Paul says in verse 7, as you wait, for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're in a waiting time period. Think about it this way. Uh, In the winter season, it begins snowing. One thing you'll learn about me is I hate snow. I hate snow, and I hate sand, and I hate camping. 
So please, let's not do any three, any activity that involves any of those things. Imagine it's snowing. For kids, what does snow means? It means no school. Yes, no school, no homework. That means I can go outside and I can play and I can build a snowman. I can go sledding. For the parents, snow means, oh, I got to shovel. I got to shovel out the driveway. I got to get out my car. Why? Because if you don't, the next day it's going to freeze over. It's going to be a lot harder. In either case, imagine that there's a huge snowstorm. You're out, you're shoveling, you're having fun, whichever. You come back inside the house, right? When you leave the frigid cold of the outside and you enter into your heated home, slowly the warmth of the house overcomes the lingering cold, right? The lingering cold in your bones and your toes and your ears and your fingertips. Your body begins to warm up, but it's a process. It's not immediate. You see, you're in a heated house, a heated place, but it takes a few moments for the last-minute chills to leave your body. And at that moment, right when you walk in the house, there is both the cold and the warmth at work in you. In the same way, Christians, we are in a moment in between. We are brought into the warmth of the Son of God, but we still feel the remaining chills of sin. It's the chills of sin that we see in the church. It's the chills, it's the remaining lingering chills of sin that we see which dishearten us, discourage us, and disappoint us. But we must be aware that we're, never gonna, we're not going to stay there. The warmth of the sun's glory radiates, and it guarantees that he will sustain us and present us guiltless on the final day. So this is how you can begin to look at the church and be thankful for her because we know that we will not always be as we are, but as God will make us, and that will be glorious. And I'll close with this. The church is only ever a present, uh, the church is only ever a draft of its final form. We are not in our final form yet. God is editing us. I actually heard this illustration from um, Sherwin Kwan, who I know used to be here. So I credit this illustration to him. But, but he said, Andrew, do you know that we, God's people, we are just a draft of our final selves. And imagine when you sit down and you, you, you write a paper, make a presentation, or you, you make a draft first, you expect mistakes and errors. But then you always go back through with a careful eye to make it perfect and presentable. And that's what Christ will do for us on the last day. As we wait for our guarantee of glory, Cornerstone, we are a church with a red squiggly line under us. Mistake, error. Check this, correct this. Each one of us individually, we have that red squiggly line of error under us. We need correcting, we need fixing. But that's what Christ is guaranteed to do. He is guaranteed to fix us, guaranteed to correct us. Guaranteed to make us presentable on the final day. So friends, I hope you understand there is no perfect church because the church is comprised of imperfect people. In fact, none of you go to a hospital and look around and say, why are there so many sick people? Well, I hope you don't come into the church and say, Why are there so many hypocrites? Why are there so many backstabbers? Why are there so many sinners? I say, did you read the sign when you came in the door? We are the church. We are those who are being fixed and edited and corrected. So don't give up on the church. Commit to the church. Be thankful for the church. 
Don't just bear with the church. Give thanksgiving. How? Now you know. Paul's three-step secret. Look at the church. See the grace that God has given and give thanks. Look at the church and recognize the gifts that God has provided and give thanksgiving. Look at the church and cling to the guarantee that God has promised and give thanks for the church. You know, my hope and my prayer is that as we continue to be thankful for our church, right, as we continue to be thankful for the church, it will not be because we think we are something greater because we amount to something by our own efforts, but we will be thankful for the church because we are purchased by Christ. He's given to us grace, gifts, and a guarantee. And what that will do in this church and what that will do to the church culture and what that will do to the witness of the church when others look in and see that these people here, they are thankful to be here. That will give glory to God. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for your word given to us. Father, we even thank you for this Corinthian church. And as messed up as they were, Lord, you loved them. You called them your saints. You sanctified them. And Father, as we talked about last week, we're just like the Corinthian church. Not because their problems are our problems, not because our struggles were their struggles, but because the sin that derailed them, the temptations that they faced, the gospel that they forgot, it's the same things that we go through. But I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here who looks at the church, who's been hurt by the church, burned by the church, who has seen some nasty stuff take place in the church and has lost faith in the church, Father, that today through this word, through your spirit speaking to them, that they would have renewed eyes again to see the church to be thankful. Let us be thankful for Cornerstone. Not again, Lord, because we are good or we are great, but thankful for that all that you have done in giving to us grace and giving to us gifts and giving to us a guarantee of glory. So Father, I pray that you would be doing that work, sanctifying this church, edifying this church, maturing this church, so that as we begin this new journey together, as we walk hand in hand, Lord, that we would do so, giving thanks to our God for our church, that it would change the culture, the way we receive one another, love one another, pray for one another, walk with one another, but it also change our witness to the world, that others would see the Spirit of God working in us, working here, giving to us a thankful heart for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which has never left us and carried us through, and the love of God the Father Almighty in caring for his church and providing every gift we need, and the fellowship and promise of the Holy Spirit who guarantees and seals on our hearts the hope of glory, may the blessing of the triune God be with God's people both now and forevermore. Amen. Let's go in peace.